way you approach risk is the way you approach failure and vice versa. Usually people who are afraid to take risks that are also afraid of failure, it comes from two reasons. One is a pride issue, right? They don't want people to know that they failed, and so they're not willing to take a risk. And, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that gets in the way of most entrepreneurs. Um, risk tolerance is their own desire to look better than they are. The future of dentistry belongs to the innovators. Welcome to Innovation in Dentistry. I'm your host, Sean Zayas, and I believe that the future of dentistry is going to be unbelievably great over the next decade and two decades, but the question isn't that. The question is, are you gonna be part of what makes dentistry great? Hey guys, I'm here with Ryan Vett, and I actually just had the honor of meeting him this past January at uh, Voices of Dentistry. Um, and man, just hearing a little bit about your story, Ryan, I'm, I'm so intrigued how you ended up where you're at today, where you're leading uh, SCN. So yeah, just first of all, uh, great to have you on the show. I'm really glad you could be here. Good to be here, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it, it was great meeting you in January in person. Thanks for uh, being gracious as I literally shook your hand and ran out to catch a, a red eye home. Um, but it, it was great meeting you. And, and yeah, I'm excited to be on the show. So what I always say is like, I am obsessed <clears throat> with innovation. And it's really not about clinical innovation. I, I'm not a dentist. Um, and you know, being in dentistry, it's kind of an awkward profession because so many of the leaders, so many of the people that make dentistry great happen to also be clinicians. And I think that's where we have something in common because if I'm correct, your background is not clinical dentistry. It is not at all. It's not even dentistry or healthcare. Okay. So for people that may not know about you, which is probably not a lot of people, just how did you end up where you're at right now doing what you're doing in dentistry? Yeah, so my background is startup world. I, I love the startup world, venture-backed startups in particular, and primarily software and enterprise software. And along the journey, I got placed into a venture-backed medical device company. And uh, I was one of the founding executive team members there responsible for building this brand and running sales and marketing and kind of the go-to-market strategy. It was a big deviation for me. for me. Uh, it was not ones and zeros in coding. And by the way, I can't code a single thing. So all the developers just cringe when I said that. Uh, but it wasn't about coding. It was about the design and all that. So when I, I was transferring the skills to this medical device company, I said, I can totally do that. Uh, the founder had this vision for an Apple S brand. And, and they really wanted to make this uh, medical device something interesting and exciting, not just boring with you know chemical formulas and uh, gears turning and everything else. So took the challenge it just so happened that the main target market was dentistry and my wife was in dental school at the time so it just made sense and all those things played together to me wanting to accept the role and try an industry i had never tried before so i did that for uh several years but that's really so my background's kind of the venture back startup um ended up leaving that to go to another uh i would call it a family company backed by similar vcs um did that for a period of time uh, then went to start my own, then went to be president at another uh, larger uh, company that was kind of exiting its startup world and kind of it was in the scale-up phase. And uh, then here we are today. So there's, that's the abridged version. There's lots of uh, details and, and fun in between, but that, that's, that's the abridged version. 
So Ryan, it seems like your career path has really gone from, I don't know, seeming success to seeming success. Um, again, with some of the, the startups you're part of, I know you experienced success with that and then other doors opened up. Um, you even shared that there was a period of your life where you were getting interviewed a lot, like on major news outlets, but I almost have a feeling, wasn't that more political? Like, like just what was that snapshot of your life? Yeah. So, uh, the startup that I ended up, uh, founding and selling, uh, was a startup that focused a lot in the gig economy. So gig economy is everything from Upwork to Fiverr to Uber to Lyft to DoorDash, anyone that's picking up a gig or a shift to do something. And uh, sitting in the office where I am today, I used to have a, a rack of uh, suit jackets and uh, different uh, shirts. And like you said, Sean, it was at the height, it started before the pandemic, but at the height of the pandemic, when you couldn't travel, uh, the way that a lot of these producers for shows would work is they would zoom you in, but they were one after another because the morning shows and the talk shows are all at the same time. And so I would literally switch jackets or switch shirts between to make it look like I was not sitting and hadn't moved in days. Um, and, uh, but that that was a, uh, I would say, apolitical, um, as a not political as much as yeah. possible. I was sort of the neutral voice. Um, it was at a time when, you know, we had the startup that was growing in the gig economy. We were doing some of the back end for it, right? We were making it, if you wanted to start your own Uber, the Uber of X, we, we uh, created the platform in which you could do that. Anyway, uh, at the same time, Governor Newsom of California was uh, putting forth some legislation called 85. And, uh, you know, I, I made one statement once about uh, the implications, not good, bad, just the implications. And next thing I know, I, I, mean, I couldn't even tell you how many interviews I did, but uh, everything from shows you've heard of, uh, to news channels you've never heard of, radio shows, um, you name it. So, so much of what I share with dentists is I'm fascinated by what is it about a dental professional, be it office manager, hygienist, or dentist, that goes from, I'm here in the op, I'm doing clinical dentistry, to all of a sudden, but there's more. Now, all of a sudden, I feel the need to step up and lead in this way or start this company, you know, whether it's, you know, Tanya Lanthier who started Dental Post, she was a hygienist and then she successfully just sold that company for millions of dollars. And I'm so inspired by stories like that. Your arc never seemed very conventional. <laughs> like, um, do you feel like that's always just been something about you, the way that you think, the way that you were wired, like when you were in high school and college, kind of were you just thinking like, man, I'm the guy that's just going to follow this crazy journey. Um, you always saw yourself kind of as this visionary, as this entrepreneur. Yeah, I think I joke, but I, I joke with an element of seriousness that it all started with a lemonade stand growing up. Um, it was in that lemonade stand in Chicago that I called the Daily Herald, uh, which is the local newspaper in Chicago. And I asked for a full page, full color back page ad. And uh, they came back with a price like 15 or 20 grand. Definitely not my lemonade stand budget. Uh, and so de defying, you know, being the entrepreneurial spirit as, uh, you know, I was still probably in the single digits, maybe early double digits as far as age goes. And, uh, I decided to start my own newspaper and, uh, that lasted until my parents printer ink ran out, uh, which was about two issues. And I, I put it all around, uh, my neighborhood. Now I, I joke about that, but there, the serious element, um, is that that newspaper landed on the desk of a local business person. 
and I had my at Juno email at the bottom of it. And they reached out to me for graphic design help because they liked how the newspaper was designed. They had no idea that I was, you know, probably at this point, we're talking about 10 years old, 11 years old. So I dialogued via email and uh, that's how I started my first marketing uh, company that ended up serving over 200 clients in 25 different countries, uh, aimed to help them fundraise for nonprofit NGO, um, you know, opportunities. So starting leadership academies in, in Kosovo or hospitals in Togo, West Africa, or, you know, you name it, um, kind of philanthropic opportunities. So that was that business. And what I learned through that, um, learned how to build a business, how to manage a team. I had 16, or at age 16, I had 13 people working for me um, in three different countries uh, at this company. What I didn't know was that you can sell just about anything. I could sell our design services, our web services, um, but I didn't sell that company. I decided I wanted to go to college. So I just kind of slowly wound it down and stopped taking new clients and let the other ones kind of fizzle out. So I learned uh, the importance of being able to sell like that was a very sellable company. It was a profitable company that was doing well. Didn't know that. I just wanted to kind of do my own thing. So that was kind of the lesson I, I learned there. But all that to say, uh, the journey that you said is unconventional might seem a little bit unconventional, but it, it is more linear than people realize um, for the most part. I think at the core, there's two main things that I, I like to say. Uh, one is my goal is to inspire others towards a positive change, whatever they're doing. So um, whether that was, uh, you know, with the design, I wanted people to be able to invest their money or donate really, uh, but we call it investing, right? In something bigger than themselves, uh, positioning, but invest in this project in Africa or in this project in Eastern Europe or in Southeast Asia, wherever it was. Um, and, and so in, towards other sorts of positive change, uh, whether it was the medical device company, we were helping patients, we were helping uh, practitioners, whether it was one of my software companies, we were improving processes, making things more streamlined, whatever it is. So that's kind of been the underpinning or the thread that runs through all of it. And then the second part is uh, to create experiences worth sharing. Uh, every single time you go to, uh, you know, the, a restaurant, whether it's, you know, the high-end five-star local restaurant or uh, McDonald's, uh, you, you have an experience and oftentimes it's an experience that you're going to share. Uh, whether positive or negative, right? Uh, and so my, my second the underpinning of all that is to help people create experiences worth sharing in everything that they do, which stems from an awesome brand experience to an awesome event experience to uh, an awesome customer experience or patient experience. So all of those have been consistent and just like your stock portfolio is not all invested in uh, tech stocks or automobiles or energy, it's kind of uh, diversified. I would say my career is kind of the same way. It all follows that same line. It just has some offshoots. So Ryan, I love the fact that we didn't do a ton of prep ahead of time, meaning I didn't know your story. I didn't know that when you were, you, wait, did you actually say 16 years old? I did. Oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> this is why I, <clears throat> this is why I interview people because <clears throat> I'm so curious about like, I, I, I'm just trying to think back in my life. And as a 16-year-old and with all my peers, like, I feel like I was a little different. Like, you know, I was reading self-help books uh, as a freshman in high school. You know, I went to a leadership conference, you know, in D.C., maybe a sophomore year. But I didn't start a company that was successful. L like, was this odd for you? Were you an only child? Did your parents like, oh, my gosh, we have this prodigy. Like, how did that affect even the way you saw yourself? Yeah, I think... Uh... It, at first, it was just normal for me. Um, if I wanted something, I had to work hard to get it, right? Nothing was ever handed to me. And, and when I say that, I did not grow up 
um, in poverty. I had, I never needed or wanted anything. Um, but I also never had the extra, uh, you know, trips that, that people would take or frivolous birthday parties, you name it. But that was fine. I didn't know any different and my life was perfect. I had a great family um, and home life. Um, but my parents both challenged me that if I wanted something, specifically a PS2, um, <laughs> if I wanted that PS2, then I had to work for it. And I actually looked for jobs, delivering newspapers or other things. And unfortunately, I either wasn't old enough or, or whatever it was. So I did lemonade sand, bike washes, car, you name it, anything I could do to trap together money, not out of greed, but out of, I wouldn't even say necessity, but out of want, right? I enjoy work. I love work. I, um, I think work has a place and I think, uh, you know, time aside from work, also work-life balance is important. Um, and I think time aside from work is important. So I saved all of this money. I think it was like one ninety nine. went to Best Buy. I'll never forget the checkout line with the PS2 in my hand. It was like the most exciting thing. And I think I had Midnight Club. Um, so that will tell you exactly when this was um, a long time ago. Which and, is a racing uh, game, right? It is a racing game. It was a racing game. And uh, this was like before Guitar Hero. We're talking, uh, you know, right when PS2 came out. And so I bought this, brought it home, and I probably played it maybe a total of five hours of my life. Um, and it just showed me, you know, material things aren't that important. But to, all the way to circle back to your, your question, what, why am I the way I am? I think my parents always told me if I want something, go work for it. Um, it's not given to you. You don't cheat your way through it. Do it with integrity. Do it with excellence. And, uh, you know, the rewards come. And, and sometimes it's in learning lessons, right? It's in learning the lessons of things that, um, you know, you, you want the PS2 and it didn't fulfill the needs that you thought it would or your desires. So, so tell me, um, what, like, how do you see, how do you view risk, uh, or how do you view failure? Because I'm fascinated by people that are high achievers, um, that are more entrepreneurial, like their relationship with those two things, because I think that is really insightful uh, and can really help our listeners kind of unlock a little bit of the way that you're wired. Um, because I feel like that's where I see dentists struggling they're scared to embrace risk because you don't really want to embrace risk on the clinical side. You know, like you don't want, you want to re reduce liability. And then when it comes to failure, that just sounds horrible. Like, but I could fail and failure means like I'm not enough, especially again, if yeah. it's clinically. So how do you, um, how do you see those two, those two ideas? Yeah. I think the way you look at one, is the way you look at the other, right? The way you approach risk is the way you approach failure and vice versa. Usually people who are afraid to take risks that are also afraid of failure, it comes from two reasons. One is a pride issue, right? They don't want people to know that they failed and so they're not willing to take a risk. And, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things that gets in the way of most entrepreneurs. Um, risk tolerance is their own desire to look better than they are. Now, uh, so far, you've made me look really good because you've only asked me positive questions. Uh, but the the story has probably, for every one success, probably has 100 failures, right? And some of them are huge failures. Some of them are little itty-bitty failures that you just learn because you, you did something not the best way. Uh, so I think that's one relationship between the, the failure and risk. And I think the second thing um, is some people just don't have a risk tolerance because they're content. Um, and so it put, put aside your pride for a second. Some people are happy with the way their life is and wants the world to be better, but doesn't feel the need that they're the ones to actually make the world a better place. And that's okay too, because those people have a huge place in the world in fulfilling other people's missions and dreams. So not everyone has to be a dreamer and a driver and an innovator. 
uh, I think everyone has a place in the world, but the ones who are afraid of failure and don't take a risk because of pride, that's an issue. And, and it doesn't matter what other uh, personality attributes you have. Um, it, you know, if it boils down to you being too prideful, you're not going to be successful in much in life because that's going to trickle over into your non-risky job. Man. Okay. So that is incredibly profound and yet um, almost like convicting because I feel like my wrong thinking and my immature thinking over the last 15 years, that's what I've run up against at times. I'm like, I'm really scared to start this because what if it doesn't make me look at my best or what I'm capable of? And it's 100% pride and ego that has kept me from doing things, actionable things that would bring fulfillment. Yeah. So the fact that you unlock that early on, like that is amazing, Ryan. And yeah, I might be making you look good because I'm asking good questions. Um, but I actually think you're going to look better when I ask the tough questions about where you struggled because it's the humanity of your journey and the ways in which you hit obstacles and overcame them that actually makes you, I don't know, that makes the, the, the victories and the triumphs that much more amazing. So I want to know where did you hit obstacles? Um, maybe what was a low time in your career? Um, and how did you not either give up or like what led to you getting back on the horse, so to speak? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there, there's probably too many, I, I can count my successes probably on a hand. The failures, I don't even know where to start with. Um, you know, I think one of my first lessons that I learned, um, is, and this was back when I was probably, probably 14, when I actually first started that, that business. I didn't have people working until I was 16, but 14. Uh, my dad had to go to the courthouse with me and we had to, he had to co-sign uh, the incorporation documents because I wasn't legally allowed to do that. But uh, I think it was in that business that I learned the importance of doing business honestly and with integrity um, and with kindness. And I'll kind of hit on each one of those um, things. The, the honesty and integrity, do what you say you're going to do. And then and everyone agrees with that. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. Whether or not they live it out, I think everyone agrees with what they're going to do. But if for whatever reason you screw up, admit that. Um, I think that was the biggest lesson I learned. And it was hard because I didn't want to dis disappoint anyone. Uh, pride, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, uh, you know, prideless or humble. I'm just saying that I've, I've had to learn that it gets in my way more than anything else. And, and so I think when I, when I missed a deadline, especially when it came to printing, Printing back in the day was a disaster, and we did a ton of printing. We did probably over a million printed postcards a year, just a, a lot of postcards. And, and the times we missed deadlines and not get to the printer, get something wrong or a typo on the thing, like you can either cover it up, you can brush it off, or you can say, I own that, I'm sorry. And every time I said I owned it and I'm sorry, almost almost every time I should say, the people were like, okay, no big deal. But every time you started to like him haw around it, uh, people would fight back and it cost you more money. So just own it. Um, you know, there's a great book called Extreme Ownership that came out, you know, 15 years after I started that business. But, um, so I think that's, that's number one. I think, um, the kindness component that I just talked about, uh, treat people like people. This was before I had the vision. I wanted to inspire everyone towards a positive change. I think that's been a, a long lifetime goal of mine. That's why I do a lot of speaking and writing. And, um, I'm an adjunct professor, like uh, just a lot of things that I love inspiring others. Um, but I think the, the thing that really has stood out to me more recently is creating a positive experience for everyone that you come into contact with. So in the context of a dental office, I make the joke, um, you know, when I'm speaking, I'm like, Hey, 
you know, when you get that phone call, whoever it is, I don't care if it's your mom calling, if it's your Henry Shine or Patterson rep calling, make sure that they have a good day and they book an appointment before you hang up that phone. Um, that's kind of kind of my, my joke. But the reality is every single person we come into contact with has an opportunity to either put a smile on their face at the end of the day or, or not. And uh, I, I will never forget this one scathing email I wrote. And I was probably, I was probably about 17, maybe 16 at the time I wrote this. And it was just venomous because I was mad at someone. Um, and, and just... And this was someone probably at the time, probably four times my age, three times my age. Um, the gracious response of firm that was basically like, that was inappropriate, out of line, unprofessional. I forgive you. Do you want to try again? Like, something to that effect. Um, that, that was powerful to me. Um, so, so those are some of the lessons. But uh, how do you get up when you fall down? I think was the, really the question that you asked. I always keep three people, and I'll keep this brief, but I always keep three people around me. Uh, the first person is someone who's a couple steps ahead, a mentor. Um, and, and I always have someone that I can call, that can check in on me, uh, that is has been where I've been. That's in my marriage, um, in my personal life, in my professional life, someone that I can speak in truth into that because they've already walked, walked the road and they know where the potholes are. The second person I always keep alongside of me is my running mate. Um, and I've learned the older I get, the more running mates I need because um, it's easier to, the more you're involved in the, it's easier to run uh, a crooked line. But the running mates are the people that now are on either side of you. And when you get tired, they're like, you can keep going, you can keep going. When you, um, you know, when you're running, they're the ones cheering you on when you're out in front of them. Uh, when you fall behind, they're the ones pulling you forward saying, you got this, you got this. Um, and sometimes they're just holding you up. And so I've, you know, uh, I talked to one person half since 2009. So we're at about 14 years at the time of this recording, uh, every single week. Granted, there's, there's some weeks where travel and things don't uh, uh, work out. But let's say even 40 weeks a year for the last 14 years is how often uh, we talk. And then I've got another guy we check in probably every six weeks. And they know, they know stuff about me. If I gave you their names, uh, they would have a list of blackmail. But they can talk into my personal life in areas where um, I'm struggling. Uh, areas in my marriage, areas with the parenting, um, areas just in my community, areas in business. A business notice I said was last. Um, and, and so that is, uh, you know, the running mates. And then the most fun for me, because um, they, you know, they knock you upside the head and so do mentors. So sometimes you get a little beating from those first two, but the most fun, you rarely get a beating if ever, is the people who are a couple steps behind, right? And I always keep, uh, you know, a couple people, a couple steps behind me. Um, that I get to mentor. I'm on the business school uh, board at Elon University. So there's people there. I'm an adjunct professor at Peace University. So I get uh, students there and then just uh, team members, employees, and others that uh, make myself available. I'll never forget. And I will use this person's name. Mark Sanborn, author of The Fred Factor. I went up to him after a presentation in like 2007 uh, at the Georgia World Congress Center. And uh, he, you know, was kind to me. He, he sent me uh, a gift of you know how to speak his CDs at the time and DVDs. Um, I'm pretty sure it's DVD, not VHS. Um, we were past that phase, um, and, and he sent me all these free resources. Got me into NSA National Speakers Association of students. Um, stayed, uh, you know, occasionally would reach if I reached out to him, would instantly respond personally. Called me on a birthday once, like just amazing example of always pouring into the next generation. Um, and, and just, he didn't know me from anybody. I was a person in the crowd trying to get a book signed, um, but just that power. And so being able to do that when possible for others.
Okay, so as you're talking, I can't help but think of like like an iceberg where instead of it being ice, though, I was thinking like the, it's like a mountain on top. Like you're this mountain of a man, mountain of a figure, and yet it's what's underneath where there's so many core values. There's such alignment with those values, and there's so much virtue that you've spent such a like a lifetime making sure that, I don't know, like you, 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 you say yes to those difficult decisions that you've chosen to live by when, when no one's looking, you know, it, it is integrity and it just comes forward, um, in such an overwhelming way, Ryan. So I just, I just want to honor you for that. Like, thank you so much for, uh, making those decisions for playing the long game in relationships where it's all about trust and not a, a quick little shortcut or who, who can I get, you know, you know, step over uh, to get to where I want to go. And I think I can see that's why you have had such success is because of the way you choose to live your life. So um, that was just some wisdom that you dropped there about those three different types of people. Um, it, it's clear to me as I listen to you that you love learning and you're a very learned individual. And I think part of that is that you also love books. So what would be a book or, okay, so a book recommendation to a dentist that is wanting to be maybe more entrepreneurial, um, what would you advise them to read? One that's trying to be entrepreneurial. Oh man, there's so many books. I, I would say, um, I, so I loved the book Shoe Dog, uh, story of Phil Knight, like a guy. Um, you know, he originally was going to be a journalist. That was his goal. Um, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he actually wrote his own memoir. Um, an autobiography. And as far as anything I can find, uh, it points to him writing almost all of it. So, you know, CEO of a, one of the mega brands of the world uh, writes his own uh, powerful, nonetheless, and well-written story. But I think what inspires me about that story is a couple of things. One, entrepreneurs have to have grit. Um, and, and grit usually uh, is at the expense of pride, right? You're, you're living on a mattress on the floor and uh, San Francisco apartment. And, you know, as Phil Knight talks about in his book, it had a cardboard divider that when it rained, uh, the open window would get like, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably getting the details a little bit wrong, but you know, you have to set your ego at the door. And so I would say it's an abnormal book. It's not your business book, but it's a journey of a brand that you know, and you recognize starting with a very humble beginnings. Um, and so I, I think that one just, it's because we're almost, you know, to summertime and you're looking for that summer reading book. I think that's just an interesting journey um, that you can learn from someone else. Uh, not again, not not a how-to book on how to be an entrepreneur, but just looking through the eyes of uh, you know Brandy that's well loved across the world and their failures. They had plenty of those um, and plenty of close calls that almost made them not take off to the next level. So Ryan, as I'm hearing you, I'm like, man, so much of the struggles that you've overcome, so much of the path that you've walked. Um, it's something that can just be incredibly valuable to dentists. Do you feel like you're getting to like completely express all of that and pass on that kind of value with what you're currently doing uh, with, with, with SCN? Um, and just even, I would love you to also to talk about what it is that you're doing and the value that you are bringing to dentists, because I really want dentists to be aware of that. Yeah. So Speaking Consulting Network was founded um, by Linda Miles in the early 90s or mid-90s. Linda Miles, if you don't know her, uh, she was really one of the pioneers in uh, dental practice management, speaking and consulting. 
I mean, if you go through history long before she founded FCN, she was one of the first eight females as well as non-dentists to speak at some of these national stages and the systems and every process that she put into place that really made practice management and dentistry what it is today. She, a lot of that's attributed to her. Um, and, and like any movement, there's a, there's a lot of other people and, and we could spend a long time talking about all the influences, but she had a, a big impact. Well, she joked that she was having so many calls after her session, she'd get everyone's number and she'd call them um, that came up to her afterwards and like, how do I speak like you? How do I do this? And so finally, after hearing that for 10 or 15 years, she's like, I'm just going to start an organization. Um, instead of giving the same information over and over again, I'm going to do it at once. So she created the Speaking Consulting Network in 96, 97. And it started out at a once a year meeting uh, where aspiring speakers and consultants would come to speak. And back then in the early 90s, uh, she would charge almost five grand for you to be able to come. Um, because she says, uh, and you can watch this video clip on our website, she says, this is one of her mantras, but I love hearing it in her voice and her uh, Southern draw. It's, uh, you know, nothing good is cheap and nothing cheap is good. Um, and that's kind of her, her mantra. And she believes that she has a whole philosophy on why it's so expensive. But over time, hundreds of speakers and consultants, many of whom, if you flip open any magazine in dentistry, if you go to any trade show, whether large or small, um, or any study club, a lot of those speakers have either been trained by Linda or SCN or our current members at SCN. Um, fast forward to 2014, 2015, I went um, as a part, uh, sponsor to SCN with the, the medical device company. So see how it's all coming together. Um, yeah. And I've been speaking for years. I've been speaking since 2007. So um, as part of the National Speakers Association and just on my own. And I, I fell in love with this organization. I've been to all sorts of organizations and meetings, but the people there were just different. And so, uh, you know, after, uh, after I left that company, didn't really think tons of SCN, uh, but every once in a while when I'd be in a group or on the road speaking somewhere, I was like, man, I miss, I miss that group of people, that community. And in 2021 for the 25th anniversary, I was invited to do the closing keynote. So I did the closing keynote uh, at SCN and, then kind of rejoined, if you will, as a member this time. I was out of uh, you know, the medical device company I was a part of then. Uh, rejoined as a member and uh, really re-fell in love with the organization and found out that uh, it might be available for, for sale. So, um, you know, I, I, I took that opportunity to kind of partner with Lois and, and take over the majority ownership. Um, Lois had bought it for Linda and really take SDN in, uh, I wouldn't say a new direction, but reinvigorating it. Uh, back to its original roots, which were, uh, you know, in equipping the next generation of speakers, consultants, influencers, podcasters, writers uh, with excellence and integrity. See, it all comes back together in the dental community. So the, the KOLs, the people that were uh, providing this great content and education, uh, you know, through the lens of excellence and integrity were, were being trained up. And so brought it back to its roots there, but also expanded it. Um, to talk to podcasters, other influencers, social media influencers, people who just have online courses. Education is changing. Um, and we have you know, a dozen or so meeting planners come every year to doubt. But now we also have publications that are trying to pay uh, influencers to post on social media or buy podcasts. It's changing. And so I've really brought it, um, if you will, to this current century um, in this decade. And we're moving forward with great speed. Uh, we, you know, From one event a year, 96 to 13 events a year now, um, people, you know, the public knows about one, right? The annual summit, which is open to the public. Uh, but there's 12 other member-only events every year. Um, and, and just enriching and equipping uh, the best of the best in, in dentistry to share their knowledge. So this is 
um, I guess just one of those questions, you kind of answered some of it, but under the topic of innovation, um, as, as someone that is a visionary, just over the next five, 10 years, what is part of the future that you see in dentistry that, that you'd like to share? I, I think, uh, Dentistry has always been behind, and some people get offended, but uh, you know, this is my opinion, not Sean's, but dentistry has always been behind medical about 20 to 30 years, just in everything it's done. We're seeing the DSO movement now in the last 10 years or so in dentistry. It's been even a little longer than that. We saw that with consolidation in medical 20, 30 years ago. So just as an example, there's so many other things with technology and you know, paper charts, like everything is just a little bit behind. What's interesting now is there's so many innovators in dentistry Dentistry is accelerating at what I would argue is a faster clip than medical ever accelerated, partly due to less regulation and more focused niche. Um, so we're seeing technology and innovators come in. Uh, the advantage is lots of new ideas. The disadvantage is usually a lot of private equity and venture capital money with startups that come and go. Um, so you do have to be a little bit careful, but very exciting innovation. I see education dramatically changing as well. Um, magazines aren't going to be what they've been. Major trade shows are already changing. Um, not that there won't be big gatherings, but how the education classroom works. Um, you know, Yankee Dental did an ice skating rink inside the trade show floor. Um, you know, podcasting things that many of you, now they're doing networking dinners with influencers. There's just different things. So um, as the industry shifts, I think the traditional speaking consulting is not going out the window, but changing. And for those that have done it successfully for so many years, they've got to pivot because, um, you know, the average age, and we're actually, we have this huge state of the industry survey um, that will come out in June with Speaking Consulting Network. Um, and we do that every year, but it basically says the average age of dental speakers and consultants. And right now the average age is like late fifties, early sixties of dental speakers and consultants. Um, and that's not just SDN, by the way, that is across, that's everyone speaking at Midwinter, Yankee, Hinman, Adon, you name it. That tells you a lot about our industry. And it doesn't mean that younger people don't have great ideas also doesn't mean that every young person that thinks they have a good idea does. So there, there's a fine line to walk. Um, but uh, that's some of the stuff that we're trying to capture at SCN. And I think with the future of dentistry, we want to, whether it's a micro-influencer with, you know, 28 followers and one of them is their mom, um, you know, or, or the biggest uh, influencer that has a podcast and online learning and, you know, the whole nine yards. I, I think we're definitely going to see some exciting innovation and add a rapid pace here in the next couple of years of dentistry. Um, well, well, well said, Ryan. Um, so, so much of what innovation in dentistry is about is the, either the mindset or even like the heart beliefs and how kind of we overcome them. So just in your journey, if could you think of one, um, mindset that was either harder to overcome or that was more of like a, wow, like I, I don't think I realized, um, like it was just really impactful in your journey. So either a mindset or just a limiting belief that you had to overcome. I think for me, one of the earliest shifts for me, um, <clears throat> I, I don't think I ever subscribed to the get rich fast or get rich quick schemes. Um, but I did like the idea of getting rich sooner rather than later and yeah. kind of fighting for that, whether that was spending more time working, um, and I would say early on, especially, I equated time of work to value of work, uh, which I don't anymore. I work less than I have ever worked uh, time-wise, still work hard, and I would say I'm equally or more productive uh, than I've ever been. I think what changed, uh, I tried to drop out of college, and uh, my girlfriend, now wife, uh, at the time was like, yeah, you do that, and this is 
yeah, I'll, I'll say bye as you walk out of college. Um, that's, that's a little extreme. She didn't quite say it like that, but uh, she's the one that definitely motivated me to stay in, in school. Um, and, uh, you know, do I regret that one way or another? Not really. Uh, but what that taught me was the importance of work-life balance. And for a long time, work was number one for me. Um, it was my identity. We talked, we didn't really get into identity, which is a whole other conversation, but it was a part of who I was and how people perceived me. And I liked it, um, and which is the pride thing, right? Uh, and so being able to work less, I definitely didn't achieve some of the things I think I could have had I kept going at the clip I was going at. In fact, I know there are certain opportunities that I missed. Some I can actually point to. Uh, because I didn't drive it the, the way I had previously driven at, but I can say without a doubt, I am uh, more fulfilled and rich in ways far beyond anything money can ever explain uh, because I started to understand work-life balance. So I think for me, um, it is kind of that work mindset of where did the, the biggest thing I had to get over was more work doesn't equal more value because you bring yourself out. Um, and all that, and I think pride, we already talked about pride, but once once you can lay down your pride and realize that, um, you know, this is temporary anyway, people are gonna forget you. People always, I mean, can you name all the 44 presidents or however, yeah, 44, right? Uh, can, you, can you name all of our presidents? See, we don't even know the number, that's really embarrassing. Um, we can cut that part out. I know you don't have to, that's a failure. There you go, there's one of them. Um, that's like the eighth today, eight failure, so we can add them up. Anyway, um, you know, we, we don't remember all of them. Alexander Hamilton, who could ever talk about that person? People would say he was a president, you know? And it wasn't until Manuel Miranda wrote the, the musical that he became famous. So uh, we get so wrapped up in our identity here and now that we forget the big picture and that uh, the things that last far longer is how I was as a dad or a husband um, or how I treated the people that worked with me. Uh, you know, those things last far longer than your business, your brand, uh, or, or your wealth or anything else. Okay, so there's a chance that what you just said uh, kind of answers my final question. Um, but before I ask the final question, what, um, like someone wants to hire you or someone wants to get involved in SCN, where do they go? Like how, how do they get a hold of you? How do they follow you or how do they, they plug in? Yeah, I'm probably too easy to find. Uh, just Google Ryan Vet, and that's uh, V-E-T. People try to add more letters. It's really simple. It's just three letters. Um, the spellings of a three-letter last name, you'd be shocked. Uh, but yeah, just Ryan Vet. You can Google me, find me on social media. Um, pretty easy to find there. Student Consulting Network, if you're interested in membership, um, there is an application process. Um, uh, so you can find that at speakingconsultingnetwork.com. Uh, you can always attend. Anyone's welcome to come to our annual summit, uh, which is every June, usually the first weekend in June. Um, anyone's able to attend that. The 12 members only events are obviously members only, so you have to join. Uh, but more information, videos, what it means for you, how it can help you grow your business, or even if you're exploring the idea of speaking, consulting, podcasting, writing, influencing, um, it's a, a good, good place to check it out. Okay, so here it is. Ryan Vett of today walks by Ryan Vett of 16 years old and you're just passing by you have one sentiment you can leave with him what do you say to him probably ask the question does it really matter Dang. okay ryan again there is so much we could have gotten into like you said about identity um the the basic gist of everything 
is that I love what you're doing in dentistry. I love the way that you're taking your successes and the gifts and skills that you have, and you are actually dedicated to equipping those in the dental profession that want to be able to level up, that want to be able to lead, that want to be able to innovate. Um, you are a leader of innovators. So I applaud you for that. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, it has been an honor. And again, I am behind what you're doing at SCN. I love it. Any way I can ever help, uh, just let me know. But again, thank you so much for your time today. Awesome. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening. And be sure to follow so you never miss an episode. To learn more about what's going on in dentistry, check out innovationindentistry.com.